0: So turn in your Bibles then to 1 Kings chapter 22. I realize that we are in the very last chapter of 1 Kings. And I'd like to give you a little bit of a brief summary of the previous chapter in order to give a a context for, for what we're looking at this morning. So this this story takes place... Uh, After Israel had been split into the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, The king of Israel, the northern kingdom, at this time is Ahab, and the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, is Jehoshaphat. Uh, Samaria is the capital of Israel at this time, and sometimes in the Bible, uh, Ahab is referred to as the king of Samaria. So Ahab is really one of the main characters in the story that we're going to be looking at this morning. And you would be hard-pressed to find a character in the Bible with a worse reputation than Ahab. But if you did look, you might stumble upon his wife, Jezebel. Um, So chapter 21 records an event where both Ahab and Jezebel uh, show their character, and so here, here's how that story goes. Ahab, this is chapter in summary of chapter 21. Ahab, in addition to the palace that he had, the primary palace that he had in Samaria, he also had a palace in Jezreel, and uh, there was a vineyard beside that palace in Jezreel, owned by a guy named Naboth. Ahab offered to buy the vineyard from Naboth, but Naboth refused the offer, and. Ahab really just became sick with covetousness because of that refusal, and he, he ended up even refusing to eat. Uh, Jezebel learns of this. She takes matters into her own hands, forges some letters using the king's seal, arranges a day of fasting, sets up two worthless men to accuse Naboth of both blasphemy and treason, and gets Naboth executed along with his two sons, to whom the vineyard would have gone as an inheritance. Ahab's complicity in the murder and the theft result in God's judgment by the prophet Elijah. It it says this, it says, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. More judgment from God is given toward Jezebel and toward Ahab's descendants. And in response to this terrifying judgment from God, Ahab tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and fasts, and then God speaks to the prophet Elijah about Ahab, humbling himself, and God graciously postpones some of the woe prophesied against Ahab. So this brings us then to date where we start chapter 22, and before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the many stories that are recorded in your word that you've given to us, your church. We pray that as we have our Bibles open, that you would open our minds, that your spirit would be at work, that we would be changed by what we, uh, by what we read and, and what we understand from your word. We ask that you would do these things for, for your glory, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, First Kings chapter 22, we'll read from verse 1 to verse 38. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria." And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imla, but I hate him. He never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imla. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, at the threshing floor, at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenayana, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives... What the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and triumph, the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenianna, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And we are all you peoples. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. Ramoth Gilead, sorry. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the thirty two captains of his chariots, Fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians. Until at evening he died, and the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Amen. This is God's holy word. So we're going to look at three things this morning. Um, First, we'll walk through this passage, and um, I'll comment on it to help us get a feel for, for all that's going on in the text. Then we'll discuss God's sovereignty and how it is shown in this passage. And finally, we'll apply this to our present time. So there were three years of peace between Syria and Israel, which came after two years of war between them. Part of the reason for the peace was a coalition that formed of necessity really to ward off an Assyrian invasion. But once the the Assyrian threat was gone, the coalition was no longer needed, and the king of Israel and the king of Judah get to talking about a place called Ramoth-Gilead, which was occupied by the Syrians. Ahab, king of Israel, seems to have a controlling relationship with Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Ahab suggests that they take Ramoth Gilead from Syria, and Jehoshaphat diplomatically agrees to join Ahab. But uh, Jehoshaphat calls in a tradition that's often invoked before embarking on a major campaign. He wants to inquire first for the word of the Lord. Ahab seems to have no shortage of prophets, and it should be noted that not all those who are called prophets in the Bible are prophets of the Lord. In verse 23, these 400 or so prophets are referred to as being Ahab's prophets. And all these prophets with one accord have a good message for Ahab. Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. These are false prophets who are not interested in truth, but only flattery. And all 400 are saying the same thing. There are no dissenters. The air must have been so thick that Jehoshaphat smells something fishy and Jehoshaphat wants another opinion. Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? Jehoshaphat quenches the spirit, so to speak, of these false prophets. Well, there's Micaiah, Ahab says, but he never prophesies good for me, and so I hate him. Jehoshaphat still wants to hear from Micaiah, and so Ahab complies. And while they wait for Micaiah, Ahab and Jehoshaphat are sitting on their thrones at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. This is the important place where judicial and municipal decisions are made. And they are decked out. They're arrayed in their royal robes with 400 cheerleading prophets encouraging them to make war on Syria. One of the false prophets, Zedekiah, fashions horns of iron, symbolically representing the defeat of the Syrians. Can you imagine the enthusiasm of this event and how much pressure would be on Micaiah to not, um, to not join the choir, or actually the pressure would be for him to join the choir? Even the messenger who fetched Micaiah tries to persuade him to speak favorably. But this prophet, this true prophet, says these faithful words, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. Ahab finally puts the question to Micaiah, and Micaiah repeats the false prophecy. (laughs) And we might think to ourselves, what? What's going on there? I thought this was the true prophet, only going to say what the Lord says to say. Well, commentators say that he was either being sarcastic at this point, or he was testing to see if Ahab really did want to hear the word of the Lord. Ahab knows Micaiah is up to something— So he says, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Okay, says Micaiah, you're serious about this? And so he uncorks this terrible prophecy. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. All Israel being scattered is a picture of defeat and armies in panic. There being no shepherd is a picture of the king being killed. The prophecy goes on and we get to a part of the passage that might be a little difficult for us to understand. There's a scene in heaven where a spirit is sent to entice the prophets of Ahab to lie. Verse 23 says, Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. More, more to say about God's involvement at this particular point a little later. So Micaiah's prophecy to the king is quite a bit different than the other prophets. The prophet who built the iron horns ends up slapping Micaiah, and Micaiah essentially says, you know, just you wait the time it's coming when when you're going to go run and hide. Micaiah is thrown into prison for his trouble and given only meager rations of food and water. He put a wet blanket on the pep rally by speaking the word of the Lord. And like so many faithful prophets, he pays a price for it. What's happening in Ahab's head now? He's got his prophet saying one thing and Micaiah saying another. And Ahab has already demonstrated his almost uncontrollable desire to get what he wants when he wants it. Remember uh, the vineyard that belonged to, to Naboth. So he still wants to take Ramoth Gilead, but he goes about it with some measure of caution. Ahab wants to disguise himself, but have Jehoshaphat wear the kingly attire. This way, if the arrows get to flying and they're chasing a king, it'll be Jehoshaphat who gets killed rather, rather than Ahab. And it's that that makes me think that, uh, that Jehoshaphat has a subordinate relationship to, the, to, uh, to Ahab. And just as Ahab suspected, the Syrian king tells the captains of his chariots to concentrate all of their efforts on killing Ahab. They do just that, and then Jehoshaphat screams, and they figure out that they've gone after the wrong wrong guy, and they fall back. And then we get to one of the most interesting verses in the whole story, verse 34. A certain man drew his bow at random and hit Ahab in the chink between the scale armor and the breastplate. The ESV note on the word for random is in his innocence. This certain man, unnamed, who doesn't appear to be a captain or anyone of significance, delivers the deadly shot. Who knows how good of an archer this Syrian soldier was? And how much did the fear of battle shake him up that he was just firing random arrows in the general direction of the enemy? And this certain man drew back a certain arrow at random and hit a certain Israelite in a certain vulnerable place between the scale armor and the breastplate. The shot didn't kill Ahab immediately, but he stayed alive long enough to bleed into the chariot. He eventually died, was brought to Samaria, and when they washed out the chariot by the pool of Samaria, the dogs licked up his blood, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. So the judgment given in chapter 21, verse 19, for murder and theft was, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. And that judgment was fulfilled here in chapter 22, verse 38, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. So how, how well do we understand the doctrine of the sovereignty of God? I'm not asking if you simply affirm that God is sovereign. I suspect all Christians tip their hat to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. But this precious doctrine starts to unravel in the minds of many once the doctrine of the will of man is introduced. It's hard to understand these two doctrines in such a way as to not have them competing against one another. If God is exhaustively sovereign, meaning sovereign over the big things and the little things and everything in between, including his creatures, then how can we as humans have real choices? Or if humans have a will of their own, how can God be sovereign over their will? The Bible teaches both doctrines and we as Bible believers need to affirm both doctrines. We must affirm that God is exhaustively sovereign and that man has a real faculty for choosing. But rather than holding these two doctrines at separate corners of our mind, hoping, hoping that they don't crash into each other someday, rather than that, we should see that these doctrines, um, one of these doctrines actually establishes the other. God's sovereignty doesn't displace the will of his creatures, but rather God's sovereignty establishes the will of his creatures. What what do I mean by that? God God sovereignly ordains all things that come to pass, including the means by which all things come to pass. And some of the means that God has chosen to ordain include the choices of his creatures. For example, I'm going to give two examples of of this, and I hope they're helpful to you. If, If one's not helpful, then maybe the other will be. I watered the elm trees in my backyard this morning. God sovereignly ordained that those elm trees would be watered this morning. And God sovereignly ordained the means by which those elm trees would be watered would be my choosing to go outside this morning, turn on the hose, and water them. God could have chosen to be the primary cause of watering those elm trees. He could have spoken the word, and the ground under the trees would be wet. But God ordains that some things that come to pass are brought about by means. And some of the means that God has chosen to use are the choices of mankind. So here's how the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it. It's chapter 3, section 1. God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of his creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, But rather established. The second causes here are what I'm referring to as the means by which God brings about whatsoever comes to pass. So it came to pass this morning that the elm trees in my backyard got watered. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain that the elm trees in my backyard would get watered the morning of June 28th, 2020. And violence was not offered to the will of this creature who did the watering. And the contingency of the second cause, my turning on the hose and squeezing the nozzle, was not taken away, but rather established by the God who ordained it to happen just that way. I know I'm belaboring this point, but it's so important. I really want us to get uh, a grip on it. So uh, here's my second example. Um, R.C. Sproul, um, he used this example once, and I thought it was really, really helpful. So uh, R.C. Sproul lost a bag, an important bag that he had at an airport once. Um, And that bag included... um, just a, a mountain of research and work that he had done. And, and he didn't have any backup for it, so I mean, it's just uh, an incredibly important bag filled with, with his stuff. Um, he did all that he could with airports, and the airports involved, um, they really seemed like they wanted to help him, but, but it just seemed like the bag was lost. Um, as a last-ditch, a last-ditch effort, as as he put it, he ended up involving his Christian brothers and sisters to join him in prayer, that God would would have the bag found. And you know, days days passed and despair was setting in, and then a phone call came, and the lady at the airport, you know, says, "Dr. Sproul, we found your bag." And, uh, and he was asked to, uh, to comment on, on that. And, and here's how he put it. I, I have to paraphrase it. He said, God from all eternity ordained that I would lose my bag. He ordained that it would be lost for days and that I would ask others to pray with me that my bag would be found. And God ordained that through the means of those prayers, he would see to it that my bag was found in order that he would get all the glory. So God ordains the means and the ends, and the means include the willful choices of mankind. Our willful choices don't undermine the sovereignty of God, but rather the sovereignty of God establishes our willful choices and actions. The more God has ordained in the grand history of redemption and of all the world, the more willful choices and actions we make. Now, I I hope that you already embrace these doctrines um, and that I'm just reminding you of the doctrine of the exhaustive sovereignty of God. Um, But if you're not, then you are missing really an unspeakable comfort that God has afforded to his children. That doesn't mean that there aren't difficult aspects to it, right? What about evil? Did God ordain evil in his exhaustively sovereign plan before the ages? Well, of course he did. If he didn't, there, there would be no evil. We as creatures, though, we're yet frail in our thinking, and, and we still struggle with sinful doubt. And um, there's a passage in Scripture about, you know, helping a brother to, to get the speck out of his eye. Well, God forbid that we would ever think about God ordaining evil and conclude that there's a speck in God's eye. We may look at the topic, ask questions about it, but let's do so with fear and trembling. Remember, you are a sinner and God is not. So with that in mind, let's get back to our story. God ordained to put a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets. And I wanted to comment on that a little bit more. There are other similar passages in the Bible that get us scratching our heads in the same way. The passages about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, those are uh, classic examples. So, God, in the case of Pharaoh, hands Pharaoh over to his own sinfulness. God doesn't plant fresh evil in the heart of Pharaoh, but rather gives him over to his own evil inclinations. Similarly, then, in our passage, the lying spirit comes upon false prophets who are already sinfully inclined not to speak the truth, but to flatter. They are given over to do what they sinfully want to do anyway. Remember how the Westminster Confession says that violence is not offered to the will of the creatures. That means that God's sovereignty is not such that the will of man is violated or removed. So Ahab was the author of the sin of coveting Naboth's vineyard, Yet God ordained that it would come to pass exactly that way. And Jezebel was the author of the sin of getting Naboth murdered. Yet God ordained that it would come to pass exactly that way. Zedekiah and the false prophets of Ahab were the authors of the sin of lying. Yet God ordained that it would come to pass exactly that way, including his involvement in sending a lying spirit to the false prophets. The fact that God unchangeably ordained all of this to come to pass in the exact way that it did come to pass does in no way lessen the responsibility of the agents who willed and performed their sins. They really did mean it for evil, and God really did ordain it for the ultimate good. So this story in Scripture like others, this is a fascinating story that shows how things in this world are happening according to the word of the Lord that he has spoken. Um, he is the one, after all, who spoke the whole universe into existence. So, so we think, how does this apply to us today? Did God unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass only in the stories that are recorded for us in Scripture? Or has God unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass in America in 2020? Think about all the things that have happened this year and all the things that are yet to happen this year. Sinful men and women are willfully committing sins that they will most definitely be held accountable for. God is not mocked. And God's judgment... Though it may be graciously delayed, as was the case with Ahab, God's judgment will find each and every sinner as surely as that arrow found Ahab. Any disguise or hiding or blending in with a big crowd will be of no use. The sharp arrows of God's judgment do not fly at random. They are precisely aimed and they find their target. The arrow that was loosed by that Syrian soldier was only random as far as the soldier was concerned. But God unchangeably ordained every single aspect of the firing of that arrow to hit the target that God wanted to hit right in the bullseye. Behold the justice and severity of God. The only hope for sinners depends on another event that was likewise unchangeably ordained by God before the foundation of the world. Acts 4 tells us that sinful men conspired together to kill the Savior, and in so doing, they were accomplishing whatsoever God's hand and God's purpose predestined to occur. Our only hope to escape the piercing wrath of God is to trust and rest in Christ who absorbed, the piercing wrath of God in our place. The sharp nails and spear hit their target on the hands and feet and side of the Savior according to the plan of God. And if if you're here this morning and you've not yet come to Christ for salvation, then I pray that this is the means by which God calls you out of darkness. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God who will destroy each and every enemy. Some enemies will be destroyed by means of the arrows of judgment, and other enemies will be destroyed by the means of God transforming those enemies into friends. The enemy that once was is turned into a friend. And so if you're a friend of God this morning, then may God continue to bless you. May you recognize and embrace the exhaustive sovereignty of God, that in times of trouble, you may lean on the immovable rock of your salvation, knowing well that he has the whole world in his hands. Sometimes the lost bag is recovered in this life, and um, and we're able to seek closure and give God the glory for it now. But other times, by the most wise and holy counsel of God's own will, the lost bag is never recovered in this life we may yet have to exercise the gift of patience, giving our full praise to God in heaven when he shows us how all things work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for graciously providing your word to us, for preserving it for us, and for your spirit working in your children, even as we read it so so long after it had originally been written. Pray, Lord, that, that we would take comfort in, in your exhaustive sovereignty and that we would not make light of the choices and the actions that we take in this world. I think it was R.C. Sproul who said that, that right now counts for eternity. So if there are any who have not yet come to repent of their sin and trust in Christ alone, I pray that you would bring them to repentance and faith. And um, as we continue um, uh, in, in this year, which seems as crazy as it's been, help us to take comfort in your exhaustive sovereignty, knowing that, that you are in complete control. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.